Amen. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to uh, Central again. If uh, you're a guest of us, my name's Craig, and uh, I get the privilege of opening up the Scriptures uh, to you today. Uh, okay, that's going to be fun. Uh, we'll deal with that in a second. Um, if you, uh, we're going to turn to a passage in the Scriptures. Okay, you're about to see elephants on the screen. and CWC. There we go. So the queen just asked me what my password was, so I'm going to change that now, aren't I? Um, <clears throat> a few of you know what that is. So there we go. Okay, that's good. Um, it's going to be a fun review meeting tomorrow, right? You pulled the cable out, didn't you? You pulled it. Yeah, there we go. Um, obviously, that Mac doesn't have a good enough battery life, does it? There we go. Uh, hey, good morning. Okay, now we can get this thing going. We're going to be addressing a passage today in Genesis chapter 22, um, and uh, it's going to be a message on fathering. But before we do that, we do want to take a moment to honor a, we think, a spiritual father figure, especially to this church, and that is Pastor Lynn. Uh, do you want to come up here, uh, Lynn? Let's welcome him. He is celebrating 25 years of service to Central. <laughs> 25 years. This is, this is a good day for you. This is two envelopes you got for me in a day. You realize that, right? This is uh, our appreciation as a staff for you, for everything you've done. 25 years of faithful service. And uh, this is a guy that really is a father figure to many of us on our staff and many of us in our church. It's really interesting. When he speaks, people really do listen. And one of the, one of the things that I love about Lynn was that when we were... Uh, conducting interviews for a couple of positions last year, you know, you just say, hey, is there anything that you want to ask us? And they would always say, what's your favorite thing about the church? Well, you ask a finance guy, okay, what his favorite thing about the church is, what do you think he's going to say? Well, typically it's money, but not Lent. He says, no, my favorite thing about the church is on Tuesday nights when I gather together with a group of men that are overcoming addictions and habits that have destroyed their lives, and I see Jesus changing people. That's the thing that I love. Guys, to have a finance person who loves ministry is a really great thing. So we honor you today, Lynn. And uh, you've got some family members over there I can see as well. So do you guys want to stand up too? This is the, he's a father in more ways than one. You, you can see this. That's Lynn's family over there walking. Good to see all of you uh, this morning as well. And Lynn, they put a little slideshow together for you. So that's why we had to wait. Have a look at the screen here.
the floor is all yours. Well, thank you very much for sharing that. I want to say a big thank you to my youngest son, Brad, who probably put that together. I will treasure that always. I have two great passions in my life. One is the church. Uh, this church long ago quit being someplace that I work. It's become part of my soul. Love the people, love the culture. The most significant times of my spiritual experience have been things that happened right here in this church. Good seasons, hard seasons, times we were completely dependent upon God. It's been thrilling to be part of that. And the other great passion of my life is a family that I've been privileged to associate with. Just the joy of being with them is just beyond words. And a big part of that, anybody who knows me knows you don't know me unless you also know Cheryl. Anything in my life that has fun attached to it has her name in it. And uh, she, of course, is a glue that holds our family together. So thank all of them who made the extra effort to, to be here today. And thank you for the privilege of, of sharing these moments together. And I would like to say one thing, though. Not only is there the history of 25 years to look back on with such great admiration, but even more than that, that stirs my soul is looking to what lies ahead. Pastor Craig, you have brought to us a vision that we have embraced as a congregation. We look forward to what God has laid out for you. You mentioned the recovery group. There's far more than just an individual recovery group. Under Vipka and others' leadership, Accelerate Recovery, we hope to launch in the fall. We think it will change the very fabric of this church where we can stop hiding our brokenness and be open about that. We're just thrilled about what God has in our future. Let's again show our appreciation, Lynn. Love working with you and love you. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Now, Genesis 22. Now, I think that's a perfect backdrop to what we're going to look at today. And we're going to examine a story that's familiar to many of us, Abraham and Isaac, but we're going to do it through the lenses of what does it teach us about fathering, about being a father, about being fathered, about parenting, about being a church that just represents and reflects the father-heart spirituality of God. So please turn with me to Genesis 22. Now, if you need a copy of the Scriptures today, our ushers are coming down the aisles. They'll be delighted to give you a copy of the Scriptures. When you get there, you can turn to page 22. All you need to do, raise your hands in the air, and they'll give you a copy of the Scriptures. And then when you're there, you can turn to page 20. And uh, we're going to look at this from really verse 1 through verse 8 of Genesis 22, which is Abraham being tested with regards to Isaac. So Genesis 22, I'm beginning to read to verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrificing there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the desert. 
He said to his servants, stay there with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb and the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. I love this passage, and I love the passage because it teaches me three kind of seasons of fathering that I believe everyone here who is a father has entered into. In fact, anybody who is a parent has probably entered into these seasons. So as I go through this, there's going to be some challenges that are going to be there for dads today to, to move from one season into another season. But I hope more than anything else that what we will leave here with today is a real clear understanding of what it means, not just to be a father today, but what it means to be a follower of Jesus today. It means that we live with that father heart of spiritual, father heart spirituality being demonstrated through everything we say and everything we do. So there are three types of fathering that we see here. The first one I notice is this whole idea of being an underwhelming father. Here's what I mean with that. Have a look at the way that the chapter begins. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, the idea in this passage is that of a test. The Hebrew word for test here donates testing the quality of a person. This is actually about Abraham, not Isaac. It's about his relationship to his heavenly father. It's a test. Abraham, what is the quality of your relationship with me? This will become a theme that I will hit on over and over again in this message. And this is this is the response that Abraham makes. Abraham answered, here I am. Now initially, that doesn't seem to be such a big deal. God speaks, he answers. But drop down in your, in your scriptures to verse 7. In verse 7, a, I, a, Isaac speaks. Isaac says to Abraham, father, and we read Abraham answering, yes, my son, Drop down to verse 11. In verse 11, God speaks again. Abraham, Abraham answers, here I am. It's interesting, isn't it, that whether it comes to Abraham being addressed by his heavenly father, whether it comes to him being addressed by Isaac, he's there. Again, I've said that there are, I believe, seasons in parenting, seasons in fathering. There were seasons in Abraham's life where he was maybe physically there, but he wasn't spiritually as alert as he is in this passage. In this passage, he's fully there. A few chapters earlier, he was not. He was pictured as trying to take the future into his own hands. That's not what a, a spiritual great does, but Abraham does it. But right here in this passage, he is revealed to be a father who is present, not just in the world in relation to his heavenly father, but also in his family in relation to his son. Abraham is there. In many respects, 
that cannot be said for many and children in this nation. In fact, in this nation, last night, 24 million children put their head on a pillow where their father was not at home. And I don't mean at work, I mean that that child is growing up in a home without the influence of a father figure. 24 million. In Holland, the stat is somewhere between 24 and 27% of families grow up without a father in the home. And what I believe more than anything else is what every child needs is not a mum and a dad or two mums and two dads. What every child needs is their mum and their dad. That's the best for them. And that's why the Christian faith needs to be a faith that constantly stands up for the rights of the weak and the vulnerable, the children. Because what children need is their mum and their dad. And what they need, I believe they have the right to get. That's why I stand on that principle. It's about the weak, the vulnerable, and the church has always stood up for the weak and the vulnerable. Today we talk about the rights of adults, but who speaks of the rights of the weak and the vulnerable? Children suffer when their father isn't there. Abraham was there. The psychologist Stephen Poulter says this, we live in a society where fathers are often emotionally absent at home. They cede much of the parenting responsibility to mums. Children possess a natural psychological and emotional need for both parents to be present. And when one isn't, a negative effect can result. I'll say it again, what every child needs is not a mum and a dad or two mums and two dads. They need their mum and their dad. That's what they need. And that's what I needed too. But it's what I didn't get. See, I grew up in a home where my dad was absent. I grew up in a home where my first memory of being with my father was him putting me in a car, driving me to a lady's house where there were a couple of other kids, playing for a little while, and then leaving for him to drop me at my mum's and then go. Much later, I would discover that that lady was, in fact, my father's first wife. That's my earliest memory of spending any time with my father. You see, my father was a serial adulterer. And after a few years of marriage, that my mother was wife number two, that relationship ended up in a divorce. And I was raised in a home by my mom, just me and my mom. And so my memory of my childhood is basically of all of the major moments through school of never having my dad around. In fact, I believe that my dad has probably never even seen these photos. That's my elementary school picture there. It seems that my mother really liked the color purple, didn't she? One of my favorite colors is purple. So don't blame me for that one, blame my mum. <laughs> There's the middle school photograph. In the UK, we still have to wear school uniforms to school. It's the great standardizer, the great equalizer, whether people have a lot of money or no money, everybody looks the same. My dad was never there for elementary school. He was never there for middle school. And then around the middle school years, God began to work on my own heart, and then God enabled me in that moment to, to actually forgive my father, and I began a relationship where I actively took on the responsibility to develop a relationship with my dad. It shouldn't be that way around. It should be the other way around, but God did a work in me. And so everything I'm going to share today has a good end. 
You know, I don't have a photograph with my father as a child, but I'm thankful that I have photographs of my children with their grandfather. See, what was a bad beginning turned out into a very good end because God worked on my heart. And I'm saying that because I'm mindful that there may well be people here whose experience of their father as we go through is not a good experience. But let me tell you, where you are right now is not where it needs to end. It can change. And maybe for a few moments we're going to go back into my childhood a little bit, and as we do that, it's going to evoke memories and powerful emotions in your own heart. Just realize my story has a better end. It was painful. There are scars. But I'm thankful that when I was a child, that scar was big, but now I'm fully grown. That scar has shrunk because I have grown. And I believe that, that kind, our kind of God can do that kind of thing in your life too. And so I grew up through my childhood, and I just never had a dad around. These are some of the major moments. In the top left there, there is actually me supporting my uh, favorite team, which is the Welsh rugby team. I am a Welshman. Yes, we lost to England in the European Championships, and the one good thing with that is everybody realizes that I'm not English anymore. <laughs> oh, you're Welsh, you're not English. There is a difference. Yes, there's a difference. And there's a saying, you can take the Welshman out of Wales, but you can never take Wales out of the Welshman. Passionately Welsh. At the bottom left there, that's me and my cousin. My cousin and I grew up in the same street. He lived opposite me. Again, a tragic tale of a father who basically treated a wife and a son very badly. Him and I were, were brothers. In the top right there, that's at a, a wedding shortly before, I think, I actually met Vipka. And there are two of us in white, me with an illuminous yellow tie. Oh, my word, my fashion sense, huh? And then the other guy in white there that you see is actually my cousin, who is now legally my uncle because my grandmother adopted him. My father had a wife who was murdered by her husband, left the children as orphans. My grandmother actually adopted them. As we go through this, you can begin, you'll begin to pick up why my dad acted the way he did. He was a hurt man, and hurt people hurt people. I didn't know a lot of this growing up, but as I grew and developed that relationship with my father, I was able to work some of these things through. At the bottom right, that's my first taste of ever going on an airplane. That's the Pont du Gard viaduct in France. I went on a school trip, and I was able to go on an airplane for the first time. In fact, you wouldn't be able to do this today. They actually took me into the cockpit. I was there with the pilots, and the pilot said, see this little knob here? Turn it this way. And I turned it this way, and the plane went. Turned it this way and the plane went. Great memories, incredible memories. But my dad was never a part of any of them. None of them. And then I read things like this. Children are not likely to find a father in God unless they find something of God in their own father. I love that as a dad because it reminds me of my responsibility to parent my child but I loathe that as a child whose father was not there. And I want to tell you, I found a heavenly father precisely because I didn't see it in my earthly father. Sentences like this are great, but they're also horrid, because our God is bigger than that. Our God is bigger than my experience. Our God is bigger than your experience too. And it is true, God had a lot of work to do in my own heart to bring me past my own pain. 
But the reality is God also placed me in community with a tribe that loved me. He placed me in a family where when my mother responded to Jesus Christ, she was able to be both mom and dad to me. This is my tribe. At the top there, there's a couple of my aunts and uncle and cousins. Underneath there, baptism. It's my baptism photo, December the 13th, 1982, wearing purple again. Just got out of the water that night. And in a baptism in the UK, when you get baptized in Wales, you'd have to share your story. And I invited my dad to come, and my dad came for the first time in his life to church, I think, other than his many weddings. And he came that night, and he heard me share my story. And I stood at the front, and I talked about what God had done in my life and in my heart. And I still remember it now. My dad got up out of the seat. And he walked straight towards me after I came out of the room and got changed. And he walked straight towards me. And I thought, oh, Lord, what's he going to say? And he came straight up to me. And he looked me in the eye. And he said, Craig, I just want you to know that I've said sorry to your mother. My dad never apologized for anything. He said, I've said sorry to your mother because I realize on hearing her story that she has not brainwashed you. This faith is yours. And it is personally yours. That marked the transition point in our relationship when I went public with my faith. Some of you wonder, what's the point of baptism? Next week, we're going to be holding baptismal services outside. I think there are like 30, 35 people at the moment. And some people just say, what's the point of that? What's the point of going public? Well, I'll tell you, that public testimony of my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that day changed my father's perception of my faith. It changed our relationship. From then on in... I made it a priority to see my dad every week. I made it a priority. I would have to walk to his house. I would have to walk home. I chased him. But I did it because if I didn't, then who would? That's a big responsibility to place on a child. But God did a work in my heart. He gave me a tribe to love me, a tribe to encourage me, a tribe to to be able to deal with my own pain. And there on the the right-hand side of the screen is you look. That is the photograph that was taken as I was basically encouraged off. It's kind of like a graduation party, really, as I was just encouraged just before I was sent off to seminary to train for ministry. I was asked to just go to the church and pick up something for someone, and as I walked in, the congregation were there just loving on me. See what I lacked in a father I gained from a tribe. And I say that because I'm mindful that in here today, there are probably parents that are raising your children without a father in the home. There are probably children in here that haven't got a father in the home. Whether through pain, whether through loss, whether through bad decisions that they've made. And I just want you to know that even though some fathers are underwhelming fathers, they are never present. Our God is a very present God, and He works out what He wants for us through His people, to all of you. Yes, there were scars that I had to deal with, but the reality is my God was there, and His people were there. And if you find yourself struggling with the issues in life because people have hurt you, maybe you feel alone, then one of the things I would encourage you to do is to get involved with the people of God. 
Because God is present with his people, and God's people will provide you with what you need to thrive. An underwhelming father is certainly what Abraham in this passage was not. He was fully present. And I'm thankful that when my father was not, my God was often through his people. Be present with people. The second picture of parenting and fathering we get in this text is what I would call an overbearing father. You've got an underwhelming father who is someone who may well be present but is emotionally absent. You've got an underwhelming father, someone who is just absent and abrogating his responsibility to father and to parent his child. But in this text, we also get glimpses of an overbearing father. Here's what I mean with that. Verses 2 and 3. God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. It's remarkable in this passage, commentators say, how obedient and submissive Isaac is. Something is clearly not right in this story. It's a shocking tale. Even though the Ten Commandments hadn't been codified by this point, if you look at the Scriptures, even until this point, the story of Cain and Abel, for example, it is pretty clear what God thinks about someone taking someone else's life. So what we have here is a shocking story on the surface that you have to ask yourself, what on earth is Abraham thinking? That's the significance of the word test. So what we have on the surface here, I believe, is what would appear to be an overbearing father, someone who is making shocking demands of his own child. I mean, has anybody thought to consider Isaac in all of this? There's God speaking to Abraham about Isaac, and there's Isaac, this willing, submissive son, who's actually doing everything his father says, even though what the father is asking of his son Isaac, I hope you would all agree, appears to be excessive, to say the least. And I think there's a challenge in there for us that I want to get to by way of this scripture in Ephesians chapter 6. In Ephesians chapter 6, we have a number of commandments to, to families, And there we read this in verses 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, to honor your mother and father. This is the first commandment with a promise. This is something that Isaac is doing. He's honoring his father. He's actually going along in submission to his father in obedience. Why? What's the good news? That it may go well with you and that you may live live long in the land. The The first commandment with a promise. Isaac is clearly doing this. But the text also says this, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers, do not bring, do not provoke your children to anger. Now, I've got a few teenagers in the house, let me be honest, it's pretty easy to do that. Tidy your room, clean your bathroom, Put your dirty laundry in the dirty laundry basket, not in the clean laundry basket, because your stinky snocks smell all the clean stuff. It's pretty easy to provoke teenagers, especially, to anger. But 
this is not what the the text is talking about. The text is talking about the kind of father, the kind of parent who makes a battle out of everything. When you become a parent and and your your children grow in independence, you quickly realize that you cannot fight every battle at home, otherwise your home becomes a war zone. You can't do it. And if you try and fight every battle, then guess what? When, When they go to college, they ain't coming back. It's a war zone. And so parents that are wise enough to understand this realize we need to pick our battles. But unfortunately, some of us dads are really bad at this. Maybe we had a bad day at the office, and so we come home, and we're just overbearing. Have any of you ever had one of those looks across the dinner table that maybe you're taking on one too many issue, or am I the only one that's done that? We can easily get into that mold. We can easily fall into that trap of just pushing too hard, too fast, too constantly. And unfortunately, it's not in the home anymore either. It's also on the baseball field, on the hockey field. Any of you know this guy? is a guy by the name of Thomas Junter. This is called the hockey dad. Thomas Junter enrolled his child in ice hockey, and he would stand on the side as his son was doing all the drills and doing the practices. In one practice session, it was a coaching session with supposedly non-contact drills. Unfortunately, Junta's son kept getting knocked, and as he's getting knocked, his dad is getting more agitated. Mr. Hockey Dad. Junta shouts to Coach Costin and says, hey, this is supposed to be non-contact drills. Coach says, yeah, but his son gets knocked again. Junta is getting more and more aggravated, and essentially Junta, who is 100 pounds heavier and significantly larger than Coach Costing, goes over and pummels Costing on the floor and ultimately ends up killing him. He's incarcerated even as I speak. You talk to any coaches, and they will tell you that over the last decade, dads have become even more aggressive on the sidelines, putting unnecessary pressure on their kids. This is true. Psychologists tell us why. They tell us when little Johnny steps up to bat, it's not Johnny's, uh, Johnny who's on the, at the crease there on home plate. It's actually dad's ego. It's dad's checkbook. See, education has gotten so expensive that many fathers think that the way to pay for college is for their son to actually get a sports scholarship. So they push and they push and they push. Unnecessary pressure gets put on the kids to the point where the kid doesn't want to play anymore, but this is the only chance the father sees. Somebody says that fathering, being a father, is to, have a, is to have a wallet, and in that wallet there are now pictures where the money used to stand. And so what we've seen is that fathers often, even when it comes to sport, are so overbearing and they put pressure on the kid. Pressure, pressure, pressure. So much pressure and it's unnecessary. Now, as a, as a Welshman, I can tell you I struggle with that too. Welsh people are passionate people. We're loud people. If you ever came to see even a high school game in, in Wales, we would be loud, and I mean really loud. And what I've recognized is as a dad, in this passage, Abraham was tested to sacrifice his boy, but the reality is many fathers sacrificed theirs through being overbearing through pushing when they don't need to push. 
Let me say this. My kids have played a, a number of sports, but the worst sport that I think I've ever had to sit through as a dad is baseball. This week, Jordan was in a game, it was 0-0, and uh, they'd gone through, he's like 10, all right, and they'd gone through five innings, and it's still 0-0, and he's pitching at the top of the sixth, and I'm like, oh my Lord, he could lose this game. And I'm sitting there, just by the side of me, and I have to fold my hands, because Welsh people are just demonstrative, and I have to be sure to just close, close my mouth, don't say anything. Fortunately, he got through it, and he didn't give a run for three innings, and I'm like, yes, this is awesome. But the pressure with this, of all of the sports I've ever watched my son go through, baseball is the worst. And with that, Coach Caserta, are you here? Yeah, you're up there. Congratulations to you, Holland Christian uh, High School won state championships yesterday, and uh, that's pressure. I think, did I read this right, that you're only coached to win it with two separate teams? So remarkable, and that uh, all of the kids are still with you and still going, that's amazing. Well done, congratulations to you. Um, but the pressure that's there, and with that pressure, there is the tendency for the dad to put their ego on the line. And guys, it's got nothing to do with us. Now, if you think about this story about an overbearing father, picture the scene. Abraham, Isaac, two of Abraham's servants go to a certain point, and then Abraham tells the servants to stay there. He takes the wood, he puts it on his son, he asks his son to go up to the top of a mountain. At the top of the mountain, the wood is taken off, an altar is built, and the kid is actually laid on there. I get a feeling that that feels like an overbearing father, don't you? Why on earth, then, should any father want to put pressure on their child? The answer, because God said so. Why did Abraham do this? Because God said so. Father's the only time to really raise the heat on your kids is when God says so. Yes, you will direct them. Yes, you will guide them. Yes, you will challenge them. Yes, you will inspire them. But only become potentially that overbearing father when God says so, when there's an issue that God needs to deal with, when there's a character defect that God wants to deal with. Other than that, don't do it. This is that father-heart spirituality that we all need to live by. Here at Central, we say that our mission is very simple, to introduce people to the hope and life that Jesus offers. That's it. Some people say, how do you want to do that? Very simply, through three things. By encouraging people to live with God in community on mission. Okay, live with God, how? And we tell you two things. We say, basically, deepen your understanding of the Scriptures, practice the presence of God through prayer. That's it. That's what being a disciple is. See, we say that because if you think about it, Jesus, as a man, only had two resources available to, to him to live his life. He had the Word of God that contained the will of God, and he had the Spirit of God that revealed the will of God in the Word of God to him. And so Jesus, taking that as his practice, I will only do what my Father tells me to say. What does my Father want me to do? It's in the Word of God. How do I know what... what in the Word of God applies to my life right now, I know I will pray and ask God for it. That's the way he lived his life. And what we see with Abraham is exactly the same thing. A father-heart spirituality driven by the realization that God's will for me, God's will for my child, God's will for my life is in the Word of God. 
And there are aspects of the Word of God that speak to my life right here, right now, and I need to know what they are. So here's what I've got to do. I've actually got to go before the Father and ask Him. And when I ask, He speaks. Let me ask you, fathers, mothers, followers of Jesus, is, is, is that what you do? Do you turn up the heat in your kids because the Father has spoken or because you think it's important? Let me encourage you. Don't be an overbearing father. Don't be an underwhelming father, but being an obedient follower of Jesus who only does what the Father tells you to do. And this is where the third aspect of fathering comes in in the text. We're not called to be underwhelming. We're not called to be overbearing. We're actually called to be underbearing. We're called to be the type of fathers who actually come alongside our kids and actually lift them up, help them up, and inspire them to be the best followers of Jesus Christ that they can possibly be. That's what we're called to do. And I love this part of the text. Twice in this text... Those words at the end of verse 8 there, so they both of them went together, it's there twice. What would it be like that wherever your kids went in this life, they knew that you were with them? This is especially important to me. Little drummer boys, I call him back here. In a few weeks, we'll leave here and he will go over to uh, Australia to study for four years. That's a long way away. And in seasons like that, I've realized, having sent one child off to college, you know, getting ready to do another one, in these seasons, you ask yourself, have I equipped them well enough? Have I put enough in their, in their soul to actually enable them to be the best follower of Jesus that they can possibly be? I ask myself that question. At the same time, I know this, that my responsibility as a father is to put my kids in a position where they can serve the Lord Jesus Christ with all of their heart, soul, mind, and will. That's my calling. And I've recognized in order to do that, there are three requirements that I have. And I see them in the text. The first requirement is this. In order to do that, I have to be intimate with my divine father. I have to do that. Fathers, do you pray for your kids? And I'm not talking about, as they go to school today, bless them. I'm talking about really wrestling with the issues that they're wrestling with, with the things that you're seeing. Do you pray before you speak? Do you listen before you speak? Intimacy with the Divine Father. Secondly, I recognize that I've got to be present with my family. And again, I believe that this doesn't just mean sitting around a table. It actually means being all in. Because let me tell you this, it makes a difference when you're all there. In high school, we played rugby. I loved rugby. And our national team in high school was rated number one in the entire nation, not just in Wales, in the entire United Kingdom. We were great. We were so good that we used to send our second team to play first teams. We broke national records, made television program stations, news, everything. And I think the record still stands. We were good. But do you think I could get my father to be there? No. I kept asking. He never came. I kept asking. He never came. But one day, he said, I'm going to be there. And surprise, surprise, he actually turned up. That game 
I scored four tries, as we would call them, four touchdowns, many of them from in my own half within my own 22, 25-yard line. Four. I had the best game I'd ever played. My friend said to me, what did you eat for breakfast? It had nothing to do with what was in my stomach. It had everything to do with who was on the sidelines. Unfortunately, my father looked at me and said, well, you've got this thing nailed down. You obviously don't need me, do you? Never came again. Do not underestimate how important it is for you to stand by someone's side. For you to actually live your life in such a way that someone, whether it's your own child, whether it's your neighbor, whether it's a, a mother trying to raise a herd of children all on her own, do not underestimate the power of presence. God considered presence to be so important that his mission and his will was for his son to take on flesh and to be present with us. In order for us to be that underbearing community of believers, not only do we need to live intimately with our Father, but we also need to recognize it is really important for us to live our lives, not in here, but out there. We will be judged at the end of the day, not for how many people sit in here, but for how many people serve Christ out there. And that means being present, fully present, fully alive. Church, go live like that. And this last one, it strikes me over and over again. In order to be that underbearing father, I believe that we need to have almost an open door spirituality. We need to open the door of our hearts and our homes to other people. If you read the story of Abraham, notice how hospitable he was. Read the New Testament and see how the New Testament talks about entertaining, being hospitable to other people. It's incredible, as you look at the development of the early church from just these few believers, the 120 in the upper room, to the millions, the over 20 million that were under Justin Martyr, as you start to look at this, you realize one of the key launch pads of this was that the early church, the Christians, opened the doors of their hearts and their homes. Go look at something called the Apology of Aristides, A-R-I-S-T-E-D-E-S, -E -E written in about 120, 125 A.D., what happened then was Aristides was an apologist. He was someone who would give speeches. The Emperor Hadrian was coming to Athens. Aristides was asked to give the speech. And the message was entitled, which religion is the pure religion? Which religion is the true religion? And Aristides went through all of the religions that there were, and he said, I have come to believe that the Christian faith is the most true faith in all of the world, and here's why. And do you know what he talked about? He talked about the early believers who, when they would see someone with no food, they would actually fast, he says, for a number of days to make sure that they would have food even though they did not. When they would actually see that someone would die and would not have a burial, they would actually pay for the burial and celebrate that life. And not only that, they would open the doors of their home and bring in the orphans. This has been the church's approach right from the beginning. An open door and an open heart. I believe that's what God is calling us to model in this day and age. He's calling us to be the type of people who realize that we have a Father in heaven and we are called to be spiritual fathers and mothers on earth. It's a responsibility and it's a gift. And when we do that, God will bless.
I want to close today by showing you a prayer that I often remind myself of. It's this prayer. Our Father in heaven, I am the Father on earth. You have given me this gift and this responsibility. Grant me the wisdom to carry it out. Let me be there for my children when they need me and to get out of their way when they don't. Dads, moms, followers of Jesus, let me encourage you to recognize that Jesus taught us to pray the Lord's Prayer because he had a purpose and a plan for us on earth. And that plan is only going to be lived out when we model that father-heart spirituality that is so clearly in the life of Abraham in Genesis 22. It's so clearly in the life of Jesus. We're so clear in the life of the early church and needs to be clear in us too. Let me encourage you. Accept the gift that God has given you and the responsibility that God has given you to love those people in your family. Celebrate that today. And then as you leave this place, go out and live like Jesus. Be intimate with your father. Open the doors of your home. Just do what God has called you to do. Let's go to God in prayer, shall we? Let's pray together. I want to give you a moment to respond to any aspect of this message that may have struck you. Dads, which of these phases are you in right now? Are you present but emotionally absent? Are you overbearing? Are you putting too much pressure on your kids? Or are you underbearing? I believe these phases are often cyclical because the only perfect father there is in this room is God himself. Just take a moment And ask the good and the perfect Father to speak to your heart. And whether you're a man or woman, a boy or a girl, just say, Father, help me to be fully present where I am. Help me to know what it is that you want me to say and do. Help me to be fully present. Father, we do rejoice that you are a good, good Father. And as we've sung, it is who you are. Father, I recognize today that even giving a message like this where I share my own story, it may well have evoked so many emotions, fears, anxieties, frustrations, and the number of people here. And I just want to pray that you would come and that you would help turn this pain into a trophy of grace. That you would transform brokenness and help bring wholeness. God, where our relationships here with our immediate family, with with all that that entails, may be fragile, won't you just work to bring it and make it whole again? And Father, as your people, we thank you that you are our Father in heaven and that you have called us to be spiritual parents here on earth too. And I pray that as we leave this place, we would take that responsibility seriously. 
and that we would go and live as Jesus lived, seeking your heart for our children, seeking our heart for the, for the neighbors that you've placed around us, seeking your heart, Father, for what it is that we should say, do, and respond. Help us to be fully present wherever you've placed us. And may we leave this place today thankful, Father, that you are a God of grace who has chosen us to reflect that grace to the world. May we do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yeah, thank you all for being here. As we say at Central, if you need prayer, if anything has stirred you, then at the end of the service, you can't come to the front. Other than that, I remind you about June 29, 6.30 at the chapel, baptism service next week. Again, baptism meeting at the end of the service out the door and to the left if you want more information. Guys, have a great week. Enjoy your time with your family. And we celebrate all of you, and we look forward to worshiping with you next week. Have a great week. God bless.